from the farther end of this evening's lecture, we will be coming face to face with some of the ethical dilemmas that uh, modern technology has faced us with. We pray for John as he comes to speak to us, and that you will speak to each of us as we get to learn more about some of the issues, some of which we'll be familiar with, perhaps others not. But as we come to be more familiar with the sort of issues that uh, doctors and members of the medical profession are having to deal with uh, day by day. So we pray that you will be with us in your Holy Spirit this evening. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Can you hear me? Am I coming through? <coughs> well, it's a privilege to be here. I'm very grateful to John for uh, inviting me to speak. We actually met in Ethiopia, which was uh, an interesting way. You had to go halfway around the world to meet somebody who lives quite close by. So, um, I'm basically a baby doctor. I spent most of my life working as a paediatrician uh, in central London, in a big university hospital there. Um, and as a part of my work, increasingly I realized and came into contact with some of the terrible challenges and problems which advances in medicine and science is creating. And really because of that, and having to wrestle with that as a Christian believer and trying to uh, work out how to relate the Christian faith to these new challenges uh, in the world of medicine. Um, and so that's really led me on a journey and I'm going to be talking this evening about the first half is going to be just raising some of the issues and the problems and the challenges which advances in medicine and science are creating and uh, you may find that quite difficult quite challenging, even shocking some of the things I'm going to be talking about um, but that, so the first half is just to sort of lay out some of the challenges, and then the second half is going to be saying, well, how on earth do we think about these things from a Christian point of view? And how does the, the Christian faith relate to some of these challenges? And I certainly haven't got any slick, easy answers. In fact, you know, if you've come expecting to find some nice, simple answers, some difficult questions, then you're going to be very disappointed because I haven't got any simple answers. In fact, I don't think there are any simple answers. But I hope at least what I can give you is a way of thinking about some of these issues from a Christian perspective and a way to help us to wrestle together to try to find answers. Okay, so this is a uh, very premature baby on our baby unit in Central London at University College Hospital. So his baby born is about 25 or 26 weeks of gestation. So normally 40 weeks is nine months. So this baby is about six months uh, who's been born and who's been kept alive by technology. Um, and obviously it's a terrible shock when a baby like this is born. So try and support parents so as they come to terms with their tiny little baby and with all the implications that involves. And this is what the intensive care unit looks like. What I can say when I show this picture is that one of the problems in a, in a baby intensive care unit is to find the patient. <laughs> so actually, that is the baby's head, and that's the baby's body, and everything else is the technology which is keeping the baby alive. 
And we invest an enormous amount of resources and money into keeping these little babies alive. It actually costs £1,200 per baby per day to provide this care. And it's all paid for by the NHS. And the total cost of caring for a baby like this could be easily be fifty to £100,000. Um, we have a huge staff. We have actually 120 health professionals working on the baby unit. Something like 70 or 80 specialist nurses, over 20 doctors, and then various other professionals as well. And the total budget is over, is over £7 million a year. And we invest a lot of resources. So clearly what we're saying as a society is that these babies' lives are valuable. It's worth spending this time. It's worth professionals like me and many others <coughs> labouring. Sometimes, you know, I'm called out of bed in the middle of the night and I've raced into the hospital and I've spent the whole day struggling trying to keep a little baby alive. That's actually my hand and one of the babies, one of the babies' hands. Just to give you an idea of the scale. And yet, just one floor away in the same hospital is the fecal medicine unit, where pregnant mothers from a wide area of uh, North London and out into South East England are referred. And many of these, uh, nearly all of them are referred because a problem has been found with the unborn baby, with the fetus. And they have very sophisticated technology, ultrasound, sometimes other kinds of imaging. Um, if there's a, a problem, very often this procedure is formed, which is amniocentesis. So a needle is inserted into the womb, a sample of the fluid is taken, and it's then analysed. And the, um, the uh, chromosomes and other uh, tests can then be performed on the unborn baby. And quite often, this is the sort of pattern which is found. And these are the chromosomes from a little girl. We know she's a little girl because she's got two X chromosomes. But she's got an additional chromosome here. You're only supposed to have two of each type, and she's got an additional one. And that means that she's going to develop Down syndrome if she survives. We don't know how severe it's going to be. It could be very mild. It could be extremely severe. She could have other problems and so on. I wonder if anybody would like to guess what's the chance when this kind of pattern is found that the mother in London in 2011 will choose to have an abortion? What percentage of mothers will choose to have an abortion when this pattern is found? Would anybody like to make a guess? 50%? 70%? 40%? 20? 90? It's actually 95%. 95% of will choose to have an abortion. So, and one of the strange things about the law in the UK is that it's actually legal for an abortion for medical reasons, where there's an abnormality of the baby, to be carried out at any stage all the way up till term. And so, in our hospital, not very, it's not huge numbers, but it happens on a regular basis. Abortions are carried out at 24, 26, 28, 30, even 32, 34 weeks of gestation when a problem is found in the unborn baby. 
And on a number of occasions, I or one of my colleagues is called up from the baby unit, where we're struggling to save the life of a tiny baby at maybe 24 or 25 weeks, to go and talk to a pregnant mother who is considering having an abortion. And the baby in her womb is much bigger and stronger than the baby was struggling to save one floor down. And you say to yourself, how is it possible in one hospital and in one medical system for these two things which seem totally contradictory to be going on in the same hospital? And the short answer is what the philosophers call autonomy, which means my right to choose. But in the end, every person has the right to choose. And if they choose to have, they, they have the right to choose to destroy the baby in their womb, or they have the right to choose to try to save that baby. And the philosophers, many philosophers say that is a great triumph that we live in a society where everyone can choose. And the fact that those choices are completely contradictory is part of the part of reality of what it means to live in a modern society. It's actually going to get much worse <coughs> as the technology advances, because at the moment, in order to get that kind of information, you need to do quite invasive testing. In fact, one of the really uh, tragic things is that because the amniocentesis itself carries a risk of causing a miscarriage, in fact, it has a 1 to 2% risk of causing a miscarriage, and therefore it's possible that the process itself would lead to the death of the fetus. It turns out, in the UK at the moment, for every one baby who is discovered to have Down syndrome, four healthy babies will die. And, which is a remarkable statistic, isn't it? Imagine if you were told by the doctor, you went to see the doctor and said, well, we've got a diagnostic test, we want to test we've got a problem. Of course, there's a very good chance that it will kill you, but uh, it's quite an important test that we should do that to find out. I think you'd think twice about having that test, wouldn't you? But uh, when it comes to the unborn baby, it seems that we as a society think that it's better for four healthy babies to die in order that we would be able to pick up one baby who has Down syndrome, so that that baby can then be, if necessary, uh, aborted. But the technology is going to, uh, it's, get, it's going to get worse because, uh, the problems are going to get worse because there's a new test now available, and simply by doing a blood test in a pregnant woman, it's possible to get a complete readout of the genetic code of the animal baby. It turns out that during pregnancy, a small amount of the DNA from the baby is actually circulating in the bloodstream, in the mother's bloodstream. So therefore, by just by doing a blood test and by isolating this, what's called the free fetal DNA, you can then do this very sophisticated testing. And we think at the moment, this is still in the research stage, but I think it's very likely that probably within five years or so, Lots of pregnant women are going to, going to be, do you want a blood test to find out about your baby? Oh, now I'll have a blood test. And they're then going to be told, right, now we've done this test and then we've worked out that your baby has a 50% chance of developing breast cancer before the age of 50, or a 25% chance of having Alzheimer's disease, or of having diabetes. <coughs> now, 
do you think it would be right to bring this baby into the world? Or do you think it would be better to have an abortion? And how on earth are people going to be able to make those decisions? It can tell you about Down syndrome, it can tell you about all sorts of things. But it's going to create far more dilemmas for people. And um, it's what happens, uh, some people are, are suggesting that actually, if you do find out that there's something wrong with your baby, then actually you've got a duty to have an abortion. There can be no question that a couple who find out their infant is sure to suffer and die and has special responsibilities from time to time, genetic testing will suggest a duty to have an abortion. One of the interesting things is to see the way that the language about abortion has changed. Once in 1967, when the Abortion Act came in, it was seen as an act of compassion for desperate women you know, to try and prevent backstreet abortions. <clears throat> then with the rise of women's liberation, the argument changed and it was all about, well, a woman's right to her own body and my right to choose. It was an argument based on liberation. Now, increasingly, the argument's changed again and now it's about an argument based on responsibility. The responsible thing to do if you know that your baby has a problem is to have an abortion. And in fact, it's irresponsible to bring a baby into the world if you know that baby's going to have problems. And one of the things we're noticing as paediatricians is that that's actually beginning to change attitudes to women who have mothers who have an obviously disabled child. So 25 years ago, if you pushed a baby with Down syndrome down the street, you know, in a little buggy, the commonest reaction you would get, oh, look at that little baby, oh, how sad the baby's got a problem. <coughs> Nowadays, if you push the towel, you may still get that reaction, but you may also get another reaction, and it's this. How could you? How could you have chosen to bring that baby into the world? What kind of person are you? So do you see how now that's shifted? Now you are responsible for, for bringing that baby into the world. So the more knowledge we get, the more responsibility we have. And it seems like that science is now giving us godlike knowledge. But godlike knowledge, where we're actually able to predict what the future of a life might be, leads to godlike responsibility. How on earth can I choose what's the responsible thing to do? What's the right thing to do in this situation? You can also use this test, the, the free fetal DNA, to, to test for all sorts of things. In fact, you can send your blood sample on the internet. You just take a blood sample from a pregnant woman, send it off on the internet, and they'll give them your credit card details, and they'll give you information back. And this one, you can get paternity testing. This is in the States. Do you notice this toll-free number? 1877, are you my dad? <laughs> so you take a blood sample, send it off, and you can work out who the father of your baby is. So, when I was a medical student, which is a long time ago now, back in the 1970s, I remember going to a lecture on human reproduction, how to make babies. <laughs> and I remember taking notes. So it, was, it turned out the way to make a baby was that a man and a woman had to have sexual intercourse, and nine months later out came a baby. Which is all down very carefully. Actually, I've worked that one around in the recipe. That's not how to make a baby in 1970. But now it's very different. This is how you make a baby in 2011. 
So first of all, you need a sperm, source of a, you need a sperm donor. Then you need an egg, you need a source of eggs. Then you need a womb, someone who's going to carry the, once the egg and the sperm have met and created an embryo. And finally, you need someone to look after the baby. And there doesn't have to be any connection between any of these things. So you can have lots of different permutations and combinations. And any one baby can have three mothers. So you can have the genetic mother, where the egg comes from. You can have what they call the carrying mother. That's the mother who was actually in the womb, who had the womb. And then you have the social mother, or the caring mother, which is the one who looks after the baby after they're born. And in the New York Times recently, this is a, 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 a true story that was in the New York Times. There was a lady called Amy, a single lady, and she was desperate to have a baby. She just longed to have a baby and be a mother. She didn't actually have a partner, and she didn't particularly want to have a partner. She didn't see any need for having a man. She certainly didn't fancy any of that messy sex sort of stuff. She just wanted a baby. In fact, she didn't fancy the idea of being pregnant. But she did want a baby. And so she decided that she would then work, get a baby, commission a baby. So first of all, she goes on to the website to find a sperm donor. And here's the California cryobank. You find a sperm donor. And you can search. You can search on... Uh, Select hair colour, eye colour, ethnic origin. Please know that graduate donors are here. <laughs> and uh, you, you can search through a big database to find the ideal donor. And here I've just pulled up one at random. This is donor 11194. That's six foot three inches. Donor 1194 towers over the competition. He's also a charmer with blue eyes, blonde hair, and a friendly smile on a handsome face. So you can actually have what they call donor lookalikes. You can please know this one looks like Prince William. <laughs> so if you're desperate to have a child who looks like Prince William, you, or whatever celebrity you like, you can find a donor for that to make sure your child is going to look like the right person. And then I'm afraid people get a bit distasteful, but there are vials available to purchase. So you can then decide that you can choose how many vials you want, and you give your credit card details, and then lo and behold, here comes, the, uh, here comes the sample. And then you need to find an egg donor. Now, egg donation is much more risky and dangerous than sperm donation because it involves taking various hormones and having a medical procedure to what they call harvest the eggs. But it turns out that now this is quite a lucrative way of earning money. And in the States, this is now becoming quite a common way for people, for girls, to fund their way through college by becoming egg donors. And uh, it turns out there's a market value to eggs. And I wonder if you can work out what the highest, what would be the highest market value for eggs? Anybody like to make a? $1,200. Yeah, but which, what kind of people would have the highest market value? It's actually a lot more than that. <laughs> what, what, what kind of people do you reckon? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. <laughs> so university, yes, absolutely. University educated. Well, it's not quite as much of that, but it's not far off. Not far off. So they tend to be the ideal, the highest market value come from women who are blonde, tall, athletic, and musical. So if you're short and dark and into chess, 
So it gives you a sort of wonderful vision of the future, doesn't it? All these blonde, tall, athletic types are going to be, this is going to be the ideal kind of image. But um, actually, this, isn't, this website is not from the States. This is actually from Russia. And the many of these egg donation places are now happening in developing countries. It's becoming increasingly common in, in India, for instance. And some mothers are becoming egg donors uh, uh, simply in order to fund their, or for, to be able to, to, to care for existing children, for instance. And one of the big advantages about um, having this uh, egg donation in developing countries is that the control, the regulation is very limited and therefore it's, it's easy to, to obtain them without, without difficulty. So ABA Peter, we have our own bank of egg donors, young, fertile, attractive women who've passed our medical and other tests. And then you need, so this is, she found an egg donor, Amy, she found a sperm donor, then she needed to find a surrogate mother, somebody who was actually going to carry the embryo. And lo and behold, the surrogate mother's online. And so it's possible to find a surrogate mother. And again, this is now increasingly common in India and in Romania and places like this where women are prepared for a fee as a way of earning money to say, I'll, I'll be a surrogate mother and I'll hand the baby over once the baby is born. And lo and behold, twins were conceived and there was a surrogate mother identified and the babies came and actually these are the twins who were born. Then it turned out that the surrogate mother discovered that Amy, the commissioning mother, had a history of diseases which she hadn't revealed. And the surrogate mother then refused to hand over the babies to the commissioning mother who paid for them. And that's why it then hit the headlines and there was a big legal case about who these babies belonged to. Now that's an extreme case, but I think, you do see how it makes the point that technology is changing the nature of parenthood. The baby has become much more like a project where you sit down and you work out what kind of baby do I want? How is this baby going to fit with my lifestyle? What kind of celebrity is it going to look like? And choose and commission the baby who's going to be the ideal baby. And so one of the themes is that technology is giving us a way of overcoming, of fulfilling our dreams, of overcoming the fundamental problems of humanity. If you take this list, infertility, unwanted babies, disability, incurable diseases, mental fatigue, cognitive decline, depression, despair, aging, that, you can find all of those in the Bible. This is what humanity has struggled with since the dawn of time. It's what philosophers call the human condition. And until very recently, people said, unfortunately, this is what it's like being human, and wisdom is about learning to cope with some of these problems. What's new is the idea that actually, we don't have to accept any of this. We've got the technology. We can overcome this. We can actually change the nature of humanity. We can overcome these problems and make it a better kind of humanity. Another remarkable thing which is happening is, is that advances in brain science are allowing us to understand much more about the way that the human brain works. And there's a, there's a great deal of fascination with modern people. 
to try and understand how the brain works. And I think part of it is this belief that if we can only understand how the brain works, then we'll really understand ourselves. We'll able to, be able to control ourselves. We'll be able to, to make ourselves the sort of people we want to be. And so by using magnetic resonance scanners, it's possible to see the brain lighting up, as people think. And, and now this is a very massive area of research. People are being put into these scanners and they're given all kinds of tasks to do. They're given to imagine various things, to imagine you're running, imagine you're playing tennis. But they're also given um, tasks to do, like here's a difficult moral problem, what's right to do, here are two situations. And the idea is to see which, how the brain lights up. Then people, people are they're praying, see how the brain lights up when people are praying or meditating. And uh, they're also using this now for testing adverts. So this is now called neuro-advertising. So what you do now is you test the adverts before they're released on television. You test them on volunteers with, who are in the scanner. You show them the adverts and you see, you try to fine-tune the adverts to make the maximum effect in terms of the brain lighting up. And particularly, if you can bypass the thinking bit so that it, so that it makes this, the right centers uh, light up, you know that that advert is going to be the most effective. So it's, it's a way of manipulating and controlling. This is also another way, and this is to testing whether people are telling the truth or not. So this is a, uh, a medical company that's called No Lie MRI. <laughs> and so the theory goes that you can tell whether someone's telling a lie or not by how the, how the brain lights <coughs> up. And this is being suggested now that this should be used for employment screening. So before you go to train someone as a policeman or as a doctor or as a clergyman, no doubt, I think this would be very useful. <laughs> you stick them in the scanner and you find out the truth. <laughs> and you see what, what, what deep secrets they're trying to keep from you by the way, by the way it all lights up. So behind all this, again, is the idea that we're really just puppets. We're just determined. Human beings are really just like puppets who are controlled and determined by uh, various forces. As this is not a new idea, this idea has been around for thousands of years. So people used to think that human beings were, were controlled by the stars. That's astrological determinism. Or they're controlled by politics, by, by dictators, that's, that's, that's what they say. Or by psychological determinism, that's Freud, who said it wanted all to do with, with the, the forces inside the psychology. By social determinism, that's Skinner, who said it's all about how you're programmed. By economic determinism, which is Marx and Marxism. But then you've got these two new ones, the new scientific ones, so the genetic determinism, you're just controlled by your own DNA. Or neurological determinism, you're just controlled by your brain cells, by the way that your brain is firing. Now, interestingly, historically, Christianity has always stood out against determinism. It's always said it's not true. We are not puppets. Yes, many of these things influence us, but ultimately we are free. We are free to choose, and we are accountable for the choices we make. Human beings are not puppets. But determinism, scientific determinism, is a very, very powerful force. And I guarantee it's going to get more and more powerful. You're going to hear more and more about it.
Really, we are just determined and controlled by our brains, by our genes. Of course, there is a real problem with determinism, just from a sort of logical, philosophical point of view, and it's this. If, I am, if you think that I am determined, and of course there are many people that say, oh, you're just determined to believe in God because of some kind of flaw in your own makeup. That's why you've got some kind of weird problem and you've started believing in God. Well, Dawkins calls the God virus. So if you think that I'm determined to believe in God, of course you must be determined to believe that I'm determined. Because if I'm determined, you're determined too. We're all determined. We're all locked into this complete um, machinery. And interestingly, Charles, Charles Darwin, when he was writing about his theory of evolution, worked out this problem. And in, and in a letter, he wrote this. But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in their mind? In other words, if our brains and minds have just evolved, if we're just monkeys, well then why on earth should we trust anything that our minds produce? And not going to be many, including the theory of evolution. So that's why he called it his horrid doubt. But because there's actually a, a real problem there. This uh, is this well-known picture on, of Michelangelo, and here is God, and it's the creation of Adam. And uh, the finger, uh, as, as God creates Adam, the finger, the, the, the creator, that's uh, this very famous picture. Well, on the cover of The Economist a few months ago was a new version of this picture. And it's, you notice that it's, uh, it's subtly different. Now, there's Adam, is still there, with a strategically placed laptop. <coughs> but now this, the lightning bolt is going in the opposite direction. Because now man has become the creator. And man is creating life, synthetic life. But he himself is now in the, in the position of being, becoming a creator. And um, the power of the technology uh, is so powerful. This is what... Uh, what Mathematicians call logarithmic scale. So every every one time you go about this is time, and it's basically just pointing out that the power of technology is increasing logarithmically, and therefore the um, it's going to as as every year goes by, this technology is going to become more and more available, it's become cheaper and more powerful. And um, the economists said that this new kind of biology, they called it biology 2.0, it was so different, it was going to completely change biology. They said it will lead to better medical diagnosis and treatment. It will explain the history of life. It will reveal in pitiless detail exactly what it is to be human. So you see, the hope of scientists is that by using this technology, at last we're going to understand exactly what it is to be human. One way that we're going to understand that is by comparing the chimpanzee <coughs> with the human being. It turns out, if you look at the DNA of a chimpanzee, 98.4% of the DNA of a chimpanzee is identical to the DNA of a human being. Ah, oh, said the scientists. So in other words, what it means to be human must be in the 1.6%. Must be. 
So therefore, why don't we take chimpanzee DNA and human DNA and compare them base by base, code by code? We're going to find out what it really means to be human. And that's exactly what people are doing, and they're trying to work out what the difference is. So it is interesting, it seems to me that in, in, in old-fashioned, traditional thinking, including the thinking that you find in the Bible, there are basically three types of things. There are human beings who are unique on the planet. There are animals who are our close relatives but different from us. And there are machines, which are things that human beings make. But what's now happening is that the boundaries between these things are breaking down. Because after all, what's the difference between a human being and an animal? Well, we're just the same really. We're just animals with a bit of extra brain wiring. And what's the difference between a human being and a machine? Well, actually, we're just computers. But we're made out of carbon instead of made out of silicon. But the way the brain works is really just the same as the way a computer works, which is machines. So what's happening is that the distinction between these two things now, so that really there is no such thing as human beings anymore. We're simply a bit of an animal and a bit of a machine. And there's also what's collapsing is the, is the distinction between what is natural and what is artificial. So historically, these two things, this is what's natural, the natural order, what's given, the way things are, what we have to accept. And then there's the artificial, the things we make, technology, the possibilities we create, what we can choose. What's happening is that these two are collapsing together. So when I... When I create a baby by choosing a sperm donor, an egg donor, which side of the divide is that baby on? Is it part of the natural or is it part of the artificial? Or is there any difference between the two? Are they not really just merging together? And then there's all these new technologies about to be coming along because you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> There are, there are the most, uh, and the rate of these new technologies, they're all driven by computing and digital technology. And because digital technology is doing this, then all these technologies are also doing this in the same power, the, the speed with which they're changing and coming. And they're all capable of, of bringing great good, of, of, of bringing new treatments for diseases and so on. But they're also capable of actually changing the very nature of our humanity. There will be mistakes on the way and suffering too, but technology once invented cannot be unlearned. We are as gods. I might as well bring good at it. We can't stop this now. We are as gods. We've taken control. And we might as well get good at it. It's interesting, just a few years ago, when the DNA um, project, the Human Genome Project, was announced, what was interesting was the quasi-religious language which was, which was there. In the, in the, and this is the Times. This is not some tabloid newspaper. A new beginning in which we finally accept that we are our own creators and that we alone have the power to make a better world. We are now our own creators. We have become. We're opening the book of life. And this is what some philosophers have called the Enlightenment Project. Like right going back to the, to the Enlightenment, which happened in the 18th century, 
was this great dream that we're going to build a better world through science and technology. And that's what we're doing. Human ingenuity, science and reason. But of course, if human beings are merely machines, then we can exploit them for our own purposes. And some human beings become the raw materials on which other human beings can operate. And a good example of this is what's happening with the global organ trafficking, because there's now a, a worldwide market in human organs. So it's possible to get kidneys from people in India and get them transplanted into people who need a kidney transplant in California. And there's a global worldwide trade of organs. But do you know what's tending to happen? What's happening, surprise, surprise, is that organs are going out of poor bodies and are going into rich bodies. They're coming out of weak bodies and they're going into strong bodies. And they're coming out of female bodies and they're going into male bodies. And in other words, that's a way of power being exerted. And C.S. Lewis, writing back in the 1940s about technology, wrote this. Man's power over nature turns out to be power exerted by some men over other men. In other words, it ultimately is about power, and it's about the strong using technology for the weak over the weak. Here's my final example, and that is, do you know, these are the people who are spending the most money on trying to make enhanced human beings, human beings who are bigger, stronger, faster, and who is it? It's the US military. The US military is spending millions and millions of dollars doing research on trying to make human beings stronger, brighter, faster, more powerful. Why? Because if we can make our soldiers better than theirs, and one of ours is going to be worth ten of theirs. And so that's why this um, huge amount of research is going on uh, by the US military. So, behind this, I think, is this idea that really human beings are a bit like Lego kids. I know a lot about Lego because all three of our boys went through a phase where they were absolutely mad on the stuff. And wherever you walked in our house, you used to tread on it and you'd hit in your toes and fall down the stairs and so on. They just loved Lego. But the great thing about a Lego kit is that there is no order. You can do whatever you like. And that's how many people think of biology these days. You can put it together in any way you like. It's just it's your own imagination. Just, oh, I've had a good idea. Why don't you take that bit from there, put it in that bit there? You can do whatever you want. So, now how on earth do we think about some of these problems from a Christian point of view? And as I said, I don't think I have any great answers, but in the last, say, 10 minutes, I'm just going to try and outline some ways of thinking about these things from a Christian point of view. And then there'll be a time for, for question and answer and discussion as well. It seems to me a fundamental principle is this one, that Christian ethics, the way we treat one another, actually comes from Christian anthropology, the way that God has made us. And therefore, understanding more profoundly the way that God has made us will help us as we start to address these very difficult issues. And one of the foundational things that we learn right in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter of Genesis, is that human beings are made in God's image. And God says, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness. And what this means 
is that human beings are not self-explanatory. You'll never understand what it means to be a human being, however much you look at the way the brain functions, however much you learn about DNA, about every aspect of our construction. Why not? Because we derive our meaning from outside ourselves. And here's just a bit of value. Suppose that on the Andromeda galaxy, some super intelligent alien being is receiving through space a distorted image with their big aerials, and this is what they're receiving. And you can imagine those super intelligent alien beings analyzing every aspect of this diagram, looking at the precise frequency absorptions of each little point on the, on the image, looking at the spatial relationships. They'll never understand what they're looking at until they realize that it's a match. In other words, the precise arrangements of those pixels, of those, that, that diagram, represents something completely different. It represents these strange metallic coaches that go chugging their way through a particular place on a particular planet and a particular city. In other words, these two things, which seem totally different, completely different, have a hidden connection. One, this, is a map of this. Now the Bible says that's something like what human beings are. Yes, we are made out of the same stuff as everything else. We're made out of carbon and mitochondria and phosphorus and atoms and electrons and all the rest. But, unique on the planet, we are a map. We map onto something completely different, which is actually the character and the being of God himself. So God chose to make out of sodium and potassium and mitochondria and membranes and all that stuff a map of himself, his own image, his own reflection. And, and as far as we know, in the, in the whole of the cosmos, we are the only beings that are a map of God, that are made in the likeness of God. So each human life, therefore, is a masterpiece of unique and irreplaceable value. Our dignity and significance doesn't come from what we can do, the fact that we've got opposable thumbs, or we're bipedal, or we've got a brain that's good at this, or we're very creative. No, no, no. Our uniqueness comes from the stuff of our being, from the fact that we made to reflect God himself. And in, in the words of Psalm, in, in our translations, it says that man is made a little lower than the angels. Apparently, the literal Hebrew says that, that human beings are lacking a very little of God. Isn't that amazing? That human beings are lacking a very little of God. But you know, we're also made out of dust, because in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, it says that Adam is created out of the dust of the ground. And Adam, in fact, in Hebrew, comes from Adamah, which means ground. And in English, did you know that human comes from humus, the compost heap? And that's what we are. We are made out of the compost heap. We're made out of the same stuff as everything else. So yes, we shouldn't be surprised that 98.4% of our DNA is the same as a chimpanzee. Did you know that if you just take a mouse 
about 95% of our DNA is identical to a mouse. In fact, if you take a fruit fly, you know those tiny little things? They also have DNA. And about 70% of their DNA is identical to human beings. And in fact, the same bit of DNA code which tells a human baby which end is its head and which end is its tail. Because a human baby starts as a ball. So how does it, when you start with a little ball, how on earth do you know where the head is going to be and where the feet are going to be? Well, there's a special bit of code that does that. Do you know it's exactly the same bit of code that tells a fruit fly which bit is its head and which bit is its tail? And in fact, even an oak tree has about 50% of the same DNA as a human being. So in other words, we're made out of the same stuff as everything else. And we shouldn't be too surprised at that. And also that means that we're actually made to be physical and limited and dependent. Because we're made out of dust, we're fragile, we're weak, we're dependent. You know, you came into this world utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And the fact that you're sitting here looking quite sort of healthy and reasonably looked after tells me that when you were born, somebody loved you. Somebody cared for you. Somebody fed you. Somebody wiped your bottom. Somebody kept you warm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So we're all born. We come into this world utterly and totally defenseless. And then what happens is that we go through a phase when other people depend on us. That's the phase I'm still going through. I've got three grown-up boys, and they're still dependent on me, and I'm still dependent on them, and caring for them, and paying their fees. But do you know what? Most of us are going to end our lives utterly and totally dependent on the love and care of others. And that is not a terrible evil. Now, that's the way it was meant to be. This was brought home to me very forcefully some years ago. And my mother was struck down by a horrible form of dementia. And in front of our eyes, she was transformed, transformed from a sort of very lovely, vivacious, intelligent woman into somebody who was utterly and totally dependent. She could do nothing for herself. She, was, she couldn't feed herself, she couldn't care for herself, she, couldn't, she, she, she could do nothing for herself. She was confused. And she was having 24-hour nursing care. And near the end of her life, I was visiting her in, in the hospital. And somebody thrust a yogurt pot and a teaspoon into my hand. Come on, come on. So, open your mouth, open your mouth, here it comes, here it comes. And then I suddenly had a flashback. This was precisely what she used to do with me. But now, it's completely turned out. But I remember thinking at the time, you know, this is the way it was meant to be. I was learning more about what it meant to be a son and she was learning more about what it meant to be a, mother, be a mother. In other words, that's part of God's plan, that we should be dependent, that we should be vulnerable. And, and we must, one of the things that we as Christians particularly have got to teach the world is that dependence does not destroy your dignity. But how do I know that? Well, because I'll tell you something even more amazing. The God of the universe, when he breaks into human history, how does he come? Does he come as a powerful emperor with people to run after him? No, he comes as an utterly and totally defenseless newborn baby. And he needs to be fed. And he needs to be washed. And he needs to have his bottom wives. And yet, what the Christian faith tells us is that even at that point, 
where God himself makes himself utterly and totally vulnerable. He is still the second person of the Trinity who is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So in other words, the fact that he is dependent and vulnerable in no way changes his status as the Godhead. And so please remember that. If, as is quite likely, you will find yourself in a state of life where you need to be kept fed and you need to be looked after and you need to have your bottom right. Please remember that in no way affects your dignity or your status as somebody who is made in God's image, as somebody who is unique and wonderful. That's the way it's meant to be. So the third thing is that we're made into a family. So what we, what we, we learn from, again from the early chapters of Genesis, is that we're all linked together. All the human beings on the planet are part of one single family. Well, people have been collecting DNA from human beings across the planet. They've been going to the Eskimos, they've been going down to the Aboriginal Indians and so on. And do you know what they've worked out? Every single human being on the planet is related. And in fact, it turns out that every single human being on the planet has a single male ancestor and a single female ancestor. And they live somewhere in North Africa or Middle East, and somewhere, the, the dating is still somewhere between 50 and 150,000 years, somewhere. So you know what that tells me? If you look to the left and the right as you're sitting there, you're looking into distant relatives. Every single person in this room is a relative. And if you looked into our DNA, in fact, you could work out that we, you know, he's third cousin twice removed on his mother's side and she's, you know, and we link up there and there and there. Every single one. And when you walk down Oxford Street in London, every single person you pass is a relative. And that's why social ethics for Christians is family ethics. We treat even the stranger and the immigrant with respect and with concern and with care and with generosity. Why? Because we're family. Because this is a distant relative because we're all locked together. And one of the things that families do is they care for one another. And you know, I hear a lot of Christian people, and I bet there are people in this room who are thinking this, and they say, as long as I can serve, I'm very happy to carry on. I'm going to serve others, and I'm going to do lots of good works. But if I ever come to a point where I'm a burden to other people, I just want to say, thank you God, I've had my life, I'd like to go to heaven now. Thank you very much. I just don't want to be a burden. If you ever hear anybody say that, you must immediately say to them, you are wrong. You're designed to be a burden to me, and I'm designed to be a burden to you. And part, that's what humanity is all about. It is being a burden to one another. And the life of a family, including the life of the Christian family, the church family, is one of mutual burdensomeness. <laughs> That's the way it was meant to be. That's, that's the story that God meant. And that's why uh, Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and so you will fulfill the love of Christ. That's part of what it means. So we're, we're made out of in God's image, we're made out of dust, we're made into a family. And the fact that when God breaks into human form, he doesn't become some new, improved kind of human being. 
he doesn't come like biology 2.0 or 10.0. No. God breaks into human form as a Mark One, original model, human being, made out of the same stuff as us. And so what we see, and also even when he's raised from the dead, he is physical, recognizable, touchable. He even eats. So what we see is in Jesus is God's final vote of confidence in this kind of humanity. In ordinary Mark One, original model humanity. And so it seems to me one of the things we say as Christianity is we don't need biology 2.0. We don't need new improved kinds of humanity because if this kind of humanity was good enough for Jesus, Maybe it's good enough for us too. Maybe we should celebrate this kind of humanity <coughs> instead of constantly trying to improve it. So isn't it interesting? Our humanity is not a barrier that comes between us and God. No, it's actually the means by which God is revealed. And that there's a sense in which nothing you can go through Jesus himself hasn't experienced. And as somebody put it, anything you go through you will, in your life, you will discover Jesus. He was with us in the darkness of the womb, as he will be with us in the darkness of the tomb. Nothing we can do, we will find that Jesus has gone over for us. So, what does it mean to be a human being? I think this is a much better analogy of what it means. Not a Lego kit, but a flawed masterpiece. So, here is, this is a... a a, a picture by Holbein. It's called The Ambassadors. It's in the National Gallery. It's several hundred years old. And as you can see, it got seriously damaged. And the Holbein, this Holbein was then, the art restorers got to work. And art restorers have a code of ethics like doctors. And art restorers use lots of technology, so they use x-rays in order to try to, this is to think, they did a detailed analysis to try and work out what the artist was trying to do. And then they use lots of sophisticated synthetic technology. But what they use their technology to is to restore the masterpiece to how it was originally meant to be. It's the artist's original intention that matters. So, so art restorers are not allowed to say, I think I'm going to zap it up. This, you know, it's, a bit, it's a bit boring down here. Why don't we sort of make it a bit more, put in some angels or something? Or we can, no, 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 you can't do that as an art restorer. It's the artist's original intention which matters. So, after they've done all their work, that's what it looks like. So they've restored it to the way that Holbein originally painted it. Now, it seems to me that's really a better analogy of what we should be doing with human beings. We're not, rather than using them as Lego kits, we should see every human being as a flawed masterpiece. And yes, we can use the technology, but we use the technology not to change the design, but just to restore it to the way that human beings were meant to be. So are we Lego kits or flawed masterpieces? I just want to close by telling you the story of Alan Verity Mitchell, who were two very close friends of ours in London. We used to go to the same church, All Souls Church. They were married, they were longing to have, been, have their first child, but for some years, she didn't get pregnant. And then she became pregnant. And they were overjoyed. And they came to talk to us and tell us the fantastic news. 
And then it all went wrong because they'd had a scan and the scan showed that the baby had terrible abnormalities and they had a genetic test. It turned out the baby had a syndrome called Edwards syndrome, which is like Down syndrome, only worse. And is pretty well 100% lethal and will mean that the baby will die usually in the first few days or weeks of life. And in this situation, nearly every obstetrician will say, surely the right thing, the kind thing to do is to have an abortion. What possible reason? I mean, it would be cruel to force yourself to go through the whole process of pregnancy and labour, knowing that the baby was going to die. But after a lot of heart-searching and agonising, Alan and Verity felt that that would be to reject the baby that God had given them and that they had to love and care for this baby, whatever the problems were going to be. And little baby Christopher was born, and he had all the obvious signs of Edmund's syndrome. He had quite severe brain abnormalities, he had a heart problem and various other things. He was quite a small little baby, about five pounds. But to everyone's surprise, he didn't die straight away. And they took him home, and he, he became, they used to bring him to All Souls Church, and he became like a little, a little celebrity, a mini-celebrity. And he used to be passed round. Everybody wanted to... to he, had, he was cuddled almost to death. He had lots of cuddles for everyone. And he was a very placid baby. People used to love just cuddling him and, and sharing in his life. And he actually lived for about six months. And then he got weaker and weaker and he died. And at the memorial service, about 400 people came to pay tribute to this pathetic little malformed baby. And Alan and Verity, at his death, he was still five pounds. He, he hadn't grown. But one of Alan and Verity's friends said, you know, Christopher couldn't grow, but he helped other people to grow. And it was true. And then here's the strange thing, is that Christopher too is a godlike being, a wonderful, unique, godlike being. Yes, with terrible problems and malformations and all the rest. But here is a strange mystery. Sometimes we see God most clearly not in the perfect specimens of humanity, not in the Nobel Prize winners and the Olympic athletes and the world statesmen. No, sometimes we see God most clearly in those who struggle, in those who are weak, in those who, who have difficulties. And of course, above all, we see God most clearly in the broken and bruised body of a man on the cross. So it's the Easter mystery that God is revealed not in power and in strength, but in weakness, in struggle, and in pain. And so I close with this phrase from the Catholic priest Joseph Piper. Love is a way of saying to another, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in the world. Instead of this whole process of trying to identify abnormal genetically and abnormal babies so that they can be removed, we're called to say, it's good that you exist. It's good that you're in the world. Okay, I'm going to stop there and, um, and say thank you so much. If you're interested in um, following some of these ideas a little bit further, um, they... There's more details in this book, Matters of Life and Death, which I've written. And there are copies available at the back there for £10. <coughs> if, so if you'd be interested, I'd be delighted to. And I'd be happy to sign, sign a copy for you. But, um,
Uh, well, thank you. And um, if you're prepared to take some questions, uh, my only request is that people wait for the microphone so that, so that everybody can hear the question. Maybe ask what is your, how did your Christian ethics fall into the terrible problem when you have you're confronted with Siamese twins, where you know through modern med medical technology you'll be able to save the life of one, and in all probability, and give it a reasonable life or normal life. Well, well, thanks. I mean, that is a terrible and, and agonising dilemma, and. I mean, thankfully, um, conjoint twins, which is what the sort of medical name is, are, are extremely rare of the order of a few per million births. Uh, but because our centre in London is one of the centres in the country, in fact, in the world that deals with them, in fact, I have over the years cared for a, a number of conjoint twins. The interesting things about conjoint twins is that every single one is unique because they all have a slightly different where precisely where they join and how to what extent they share organs and so on. Every single pair of twins is different. And therefore each one is a unique challenge that you have to try to work out what is the right thing to do. And in some cases it seems to me it's clear that the right thing to do is to do nothing. And it's to keep the babies comfortable and and provide palliative care. And one of the things that, which I've often done in my career is provided palliative care for a dying baby. And the principles are not that different from providing palliative care for somebody dying of cancer or from some other terminal condition. So we can't make every baby better. And sometimes the right thing to do is not to try. But there are other situations, and as you say, occasionally it is the situation where there might be the possibility of saving one baby, but a, uh, knowing that that would lead to the death of another one. This, there was a very famous case, which you may remember, called Jody and Mary. These were babies in Liverpool. One of them were conjoined twins. They were actually joined in the pelvis, in, in the bottom area. And uh, the weaker one, Mary, was dependent, her circulation was dependent totally on the stronger one, Jody. And the doctors felt that if they separated them, that one would survive and one would die. The parents, after a lot of agonizing, said they didn't want to have the operation. But the doctors went to the court because they felt that they had, they should try to save one baby. And after lots of agonizing, the judge basically said yes, they could do the operation. And so an operation was performed. And uh, Mary did die minutes after the operation and Jodie survived and I understand she's, she's well, she's probably now seven or eight years old. I think in the end one can't just can't, there, is no, there is no right or wrong answer. I think there, there are situations where they're just agonising and it would be a question. In that situation I personally feel probably I would have gone with the parents instead Yes, it's tragic, but in this particular situation, maybe it's better to allow both babies to die. But I can see why the doctors there actually felt they should give Mary a chance, and why the judge, Jody, and why the judges went with that. So it's it's an agonisingly difficult question, and, and I'm afraid technology does create these. Thankfully, 
as I said, conjoint twins are very rare. There are, however, much more common problems that technology uh, creates as to whether or not we should do the operation or not. It's, it's often very difficult. Over 50 years ago, when I was a student at UCH, we used to talk, talk over the beers in the Marlborough um, about, wouldn't it be nice if? Wouldn't it be nice if we could do this? Wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? <coughs> Gosh, you're happy care what you wish for, don't you? Yes, you have. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> and I think that it is one of those terrible ironies that as, as now we, you know, for thousands of years, medicine basically could do virtually nothing. I mean, medicine consisted of keeping them comfortable and pontification and saying, oh, I think this one is usually there's nothing this was, but actually you couldn't do anything. And I remember when I was a medical student, I was actually at St. Thomas's Hospital, that our senior consultant came from the pre-antibiotic era, and he used to tell us things like, I remember this kind, we used to give mercuric chloride. They all died, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
totally. What that means is that there is no purpose to existence. There is no meaning behind being human or behind life or the universe. And actually, good and evil, there's no distinction between good and evil. I mean, it's just stuff. Things happen. Clockwork clicks. And you know, Hitler's clockwork led to him slaughtering the Jews, and Mother Teresa's clockwork led to her doing nice things in Calcutta, but it's all clockwork. There's really no difference. The interesting thing is that people like Dawkins are not prepared to go that far. They take their materialism to a certain area, and then they suddenly draw back and say, oh, no, 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 we can agree that this is good. We say this is better, really. If it's all clockwork, it doesn't work like that. So, but um, John Lennox is saying, no, that isn't true, because there's, there's matter and energy, but there's something else, there's information. And the question is, where does that information come from? He's a mathematician, so he's got a particular take on it. I, I think, I mean, I, I think it's very interesting um, what, what uh, John Lennox is saying. I personally, you know, there's this, this, the intelligent design movement, and there's the creationist movement, and there are chaotic evolutionists, and it's all incredibly confusing. I'm going to start a new movement, and it's called Intelligent Uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> because I basically think that we don't know. It, you know, in the end, it's a mystery, and sometimes, rather than come up with some great theory about how it all works, perhaps we should be honest enough to say, we don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that there is a God who has made us in his own image. And precisely how he makes us in his own image and how that works is, is a mystery. I mean, you see this even in small form in, in, as a baby develops in the womb. You know, because what happens is you start with a single cell and it is just a cell. There's nothing magic about it. It's got a nucleus and it's got a bilipid membrane, and it's got various bits of my machinery, and then that cell click produces two cells, and then click it produces four cells, and then click it produces eight cells, and then click it produces 16 cells. It's just machinery. But at the same time, God is calling into existence a unique human being that the world has never seen, someone he knows and loves by name. Someone he, it says in Psalm 139, every word, every day of my life was written or one of them came to be. So, how could it be that these two things, on the one hand, just a bit of cellular machinery, on the other hand, God calling into existence a unique and wonderful human being, how could those two things be true at the same time? And the honest answer is, I haven't a clue, <laughs> but I know they're both true. And therefore, what we've got to do is make sure we hold them both together. Just in the same way, it's not that surprising, but the Christian faith tells us that, that Jesus was fully man and fully God. How can that be true? We don't know, but they're both true. And it tells us that the words of the Bible are just the words of men written down, and at the same time, they're breathed by the Holy Spirit. How can that be true? We don't know, but they're both true. So holding together these two things and saying, I can't understand how they fit together, but I know they're both true, is it seems to me what we should what we should say. Can I just make an observation? If science is saying now in the year 2011 that we all of us go back to one man, one woman. 
I find that quite extraordinary in the sense that in the time of memorial, I, I don't know the facts, um, go back to the beginning of the creation, and mm -hmm. certainly everybody then believed that we came from that would be one man and one woman. And so, yes, well, it is, in some sense it is. And of course, that's one of the interesting things. That's why you should always be, when they say science has proved, you should always have in brackets this year. <laughs> because one thing seemed absolutely certain that science was absolutely clear about, and that's that the universe had always existed. It always existed. And then, unfortunately, it turns out, hang on a minute. No, it didn't. It all started with a big bang. Oh dear, we don't like that. That doesn't sound right at all. But lo and behold, it was right. started in the beginning. What was the first thing that started the whole thing going? Well, and nobody knows. Nobody knows. Intelligent uncertainty. And I think that it is true that this, this was a very uncomfortable discovery that we have a common human ancestor. When I was learning about evolution, it was obvious, everybody realized, that human beings had evolved on numerous times all around the planet. Now it turns out, they call it the out of Africa hypothesis, that modern human beings start off in a particular place, and they spread out across the whole of the globe very, very rapidly. Um, and they go down all the way down to Australia and they come up the way through Europe and then over the Bering Straits and down into North. And you can actually work out and time how that happened and how many. It turns out we're only about 20 people went into North America and populated the whole of North America as they sort of went down. And that's why it turns out we're all related. So the evolutionists say there were other hominids around, there were Neanderthals, there were other things. But none of them contributed to this new family, which, which came out of Africa. So, again, you know, I don't want to tie up, that's what it is this year. What it's going to be next year, I don't know. And so one, I think, you know, as Christians, it's a mistake to hang on to the latest theory and say, ah, oh, see, it proves it all, because who knows? But it is interesting, isn't it? I think what, when the Bible talks about us being a family, it turns out that it's, it's more than just a metaphor. It's actually physical reality. We are physically related. And, and the differences between us, the fact that some people have brown skin, some people have yellow hair, and so on, is incredibly superficial. Once you look in, we're those are things which came very recently. In fact, it's perfectly possible to reconstruct what the original Adam looked like. And the arteries, they look very much like an Ethiopian looks today. They, they have that particular, that's what Adam, and in other words, if Adam was to walk down the street, our common male ancestor, he wouldn't give him a second glance. He just looks like us. Uh, I like to think that however far back you go, God, goes back that far and created the original bang with the purpose of creating someone in his own Yes. I think you're right. So did you hear that? So that right from the beginning, God's plan was to make beings like this. And I think the Bible says that. Um, but but in, amazingly, God's plans go back before the big bang. But, but what we mustn't 
fall into is what philosophers call deism. And deism is the idea that God winds up the clockwork and then leaves it to go ticking away. That's not what the Bible says. Because what the Bible says is that every single millisecond, God is holding it together. God is not just wound up and left it. He's everywhere. You cannot get away from him. He is there, involved, and sustaining and upholding. Because without him, the whole thing would fall apart into, into chaos. I'm wondering where God is in, his, in the computer design baby. With the tall, fair haired mother, and well, the tall, dark, handsome father. You know, the interesting thing, the amazing thing, is that the answer is that God is there. That, that even because you know how human beings are conceived is often not according to God's plan. That was true a long time ago, as much as it's true now. How many human beings have been conceived in the most appalling ways by rape, by by all sorts? I remember the bumper sticker, which stuck sticker, bumper sticker, which read, "Drive carefully. Ninety-nine percent of humans are caused by accidents." <laughs> <laughs> so. Human beings have been created in all sorts of bizarre ways, including I personally, for instance, know, know human beings who have been created through rape. And that's appalling. Can you imagine anything worse as a way of coming into the world? And yet, that God can redeem that evil and turn it into the most amazing goodness. And in fact, if, you, if you're interested in the, in the question of rape, and particularly whether abortion should be following rape is appropriate, there's an amazing book called Startling Beauty, which is the story of a, of a woman, an American woman, who's raped, a white woman who's raped by a black intruder. And she conceives, and she's advised by everybody, including lots of people in the church, that the best thing to do is to have an abortion, because really, you know, surely that would be. And I really think of all the problems this child's going to face and all the rest. But after she, that child is born and comes in, and she. Her husband, and she agreed to take this mixed-race child into their family and to love the child they're in. She then has to have all these comments as she pushes this mixed-race child around. All these comments come. Oh, it's not you know been playing away from home, dear, have you? And yet the story she calls it startling beauty because she says rape is evil and it's ugly and it's destructive. And yet I look into the face of a child who is so unwanted and I see a startling beauty. And it's this idea that God can redeem and bring goodness out of the most terrible evil. And the conclusion I've come after sort of 30 years of medicine is that there is no situation so evil, so terrible, so warped by sin that God cannot redeem and turn to something beautiful. And therefore, we should be, in the same therefore applies even to the test tube baby created, you know, or the, the child that's now happening who has discovered they have 20 half-siblings, the same sperm donor, and they're discovering around the country, sometimes around the world, they have a whole network of people who are all my half-siblings half from the same sperm donor. Even so, God can redeem these that doesn't mean to say it was a good thing that happened in the first place, but it does mean to say I believe by faith that God can bring good out of me.
good place to end. Can I, can I borrow your response? Stop you answering that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, Switch me off. Yeah. Um, John, when I invited you to come and give this lecture, um, I was looking forward to seeing you again. And I knew that you'd have something interesting to say. What, what I didn't realise was even the half of it. Um, the way in which I suspect we prayed for you at the beginning and I think our prayers have been answered. I doubt whether there is anyone here who will go home this evening without having something really important to think about. And you've rooted all this in your own Christian faith, which is a, a wonderful thing. And to, and to see the way that, that you have um, carried this faith into such a difficult area and not answered all the questions, but have tackled the questions and have shown us such wonderful examples. Um, there's only one thing that I took um, slight exception to in your talk, and that was the suggestion that the clergy should be lighter. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, actually, I would submit to lie testing to hear the talk again. <laughs> I think we have been so blessed. Thank you for coming, and thank you for all that you've given us this evening. It's been really wonderful. Thank you.